0: Now, hey guys, I got a report from last week. Um, in response to the question, can Pastor Dave to the extreme, rock a bike like a van, the light of a stage, and reminds a chunk like a candle. Um, <laughs> it's a split decision. Some said awesome, ice, ice baby, all the way. Yes, with multiple exclamation points. Absolutely. Um, which was, of course, balanced for things like stay and pastoring, don't quit your day job. Oh my gosh, Pastor, no, not even close. So, I regret to inform you today that I am taking a hiatus from my rapping career. <laughs> However, just as when Elijah was lifted up into heaven and Elisha took on the mantle, so we have decided that Mark Chaffee must bear the gold pants. So, who thinks Mark should close worship today at Gold West? Mark. Mark? Mark? All right, guys, I want you to do something for us. If Mark does not wear these pants when we come to closing worship today, I don't want you to sing. I don't want you to worship. I want you to boo Mark mercilessly until the pants go on. Can you do that? Can you do that now, Mark? We expect to see them in 30 minutes. All right. Thanks, brother. You may start the clock. We are in our last segment today of In 30. Here's what we're doing. I am taking a major life theological complicated topic in under 30 minutes. I am gonna give you the groundwork on how to navigate your way through it. Ready for today's topic? Yes. 2,000 years of denominations. Woo! We have 29 minutes and 30 seconds to get through 2,000 years of variations within Christianity since the time of the initial apostles. I'm so getting spanked today, I swear. <laughs> let's see where this can go, all right? Now, to get us going here today as we think about this, I'd like to do something today. And what I've always found absolutely cool about Fellowship of Faith is that we are a church of minorities. Now, I know some of you, you know, you look around and it's like, um, really? I'm not talking ethnic-wise. What I'm talking about is when we look at the backgrounds of which we come out of, specifically the church backgrounds and the theological backgrounds that have formed who we are, even though this is a church affiliated with the Lutheran denomination, we do not have a majority background of people here. So I want to show you what I mean, and let's see how this represents here today. I'm going to ask you to do a series of standing up exercises this morning. And what I'd like you to do this morning is to stand up when I mention the faith tradition that has had a formative impact on you. Now understand, some of you might stand up two, three, or even four times during this. But if any of these faith traditions have had a formative impact on you, I want you to stand up when I say, does this make sense? All right, just be bold, just own it, even if you stand alone, it's cool. We're all friends here, right? Okay, if you have come out of some kind of formative Roman Catholic background, please stand up. All right, let's give our Catholic brothers and sisters a hand. Next seat. If you come out of, in an, any persuasion, some kind of Lutheran formative background, please stand up. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, we got the composer of the mighty fortress back there somewhere. Alright, let's give our Luther brothers and sisters a hand. Okay? You don't like the Lutherans as much as the Catholics. Pope huh? oh, Power, baby, alright. If you have come out, and I'm going to do this in a broad stroke, some other form of evangelical background. I don't care if it's Baptist or Assembly of God or ED3 or non the chapel or Willow or something like that. If you've come out of of some kind of evangelical, faith-formative background, would you please stand up? Alright, let's give the evangelical broadcasts a hand. Again, we're talking broad strokes. Now, if you've come out of a mainline Protestant background, Anglican, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, some of those more formal, old Methodism, things like that. Would you please stand up? All right, let's give them a hand. And let's do this too, because it's, it's an aspect of F.O.F. that I've always loved, and it's always interesting how the next shifts on this. Uh, but if you don't have really a faith formative background, growing up, you didn't have a church experience, that went beyond getting baptized as a baby, Christmas and Easter. You know, I'm not counting that, but I mean, just it, it really wasn't there. Would you, would you stand up today? All right. <laughs> now, what we're going to talk about today is what are the similarities between these various faith backgrounds? What are the differences? Why is it important? and some closing observations from there. Now do you remember when we acapella last week to Vanilla Ice and and, and, you know we we got various beats going. we we started there was a group over here and they were kind of like a bass beat and then there was a group over here that was laying the hi-hat and there was a group over here that was laying the bass beat. You, You remember this right? One way to think about denominational differences is to think about all of those various faith traditions as representing one track Within the song, so for example, if you were a fundamentalist, you were probably a kick drum, you know, because what do fundamentalists do? They just walk around, boom, 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 you know, with people, and, 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 and that's what fundamentalists do. That they, they emphasize that piece of the track. Likewise, if you come out of a Roman Catholic background, and you know, you get that kind of guilt-ridden Catholic syndrome, you probably have the hi hat like your mother going. Tsk, 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 do you see what I mean? Every denomination seems to represent, or to better put, emphasize one track within the song. Now, as theologians talk about this, they will talk about, I've got to lay some theological terms on here today, two big things in understanding the differences in the streams in which Christians swim. One is called this, the formal principle. Now, the formal principle is concerned with what a group of believers consider to be their source of authority. So where do they go to find their answers? Some will say, we follow the Bible. But some will say, we follow the Bible, but that Bible must be interpreted through a certain perspective. And others will say, well, that perspective might be this written document over here. This perspective might be this, this stream of the church in terms of its history. While this one over here goes, no, it's interpreted through my own personal experience as I kind of matrix against it. Finding out the source of authority for the stream that a believer swims in is the first big step in really deciphering what makes the different streams different. Make sense? Second is this. It's called the material principle. Now, the material principle is all about the nucleus. And what I mean by that is what is the central teaching that that certain group seems to highlight? Have you ever been around certain believers or in certain churches, and no matter where you're looking in the Bible, or no matter what you're talking about in some kind of like small group, the discussion always seems to come back to like this one point right here. You know what I mean? That is always a good key as to what that material principle is regarding that faith group. So we have formal principle and material principle. And if you can unlock both of these, you can pretty much figure out what are the similarities and differences between every faith tradition that is out there since the time of John and the apostles. Makes sense. We're gonna go a different way, though, today. We're gonna give a nod to formal and material principle as we look at a few. But instead, we're going to set it up by a new metaphor today that I think is going to help you understand what some of these differences mean. And the metaphor is that of a marathon. Back to that in a moment. Now, I don't care who you are, if you stood up here today, all of us who are in this room are this. Okay? Now, I want you to try to decode this. And if the letter looks close to an English letter, just go with your gut on it. Now, do you see that third letter in? It's called a theta. It makes the f th sound, like this, right? So go on, th. good. Now, do you see the fifth letter in? It's kind of like this weird, like slanty line with like a, a brace holding it up so it doesn't collapse. See what I mean? That's called lambda, and it makes the l l love sound, right? So give me a l. So we got th and l. Let's see if you can sound it out. Yeah, you kind of got it, right? Catholico, or if you drop that oo at the end. Catholic. You see it? Yeah. You know what I said about Pope Power earlier? Yeah, dude, forget it. (laughs) But it's true. Each of us in this room are Catholic at least by a biblical or early church understanding. Now, when I say Catholic, what I don't mean is Roman Catholic. What I don't mean is a capital C Catholic, in terms of the way that I think most people today think about the word Catholic. What I mean instead is a little c Catholic, as the word was originally used in the Greek language in the time of the early church, which simply means this, universal Or according to the whole. All of us belong to the whole church. I don't care what tribe you belong to. At the end of the day, we're all a part of the whole, even though we have distinctives. All of us belong to the universal church that extends over all space and time and borders and traditions and ethnicities and fill in the blank. All of us, by that definition, are Catholic. That's interesting how this term came into use, and I just want to share a little bit about it today. The first time it ever pops on the scene in Christian literature is 107 AD. Okay? Here's the quote. It comes from, like, by a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. He was a bishop. He was writing a letter to um, a group of Christians in, in either Smyrna or Myra, depending on the era you were in. And what makes Mira kind of interesting later on is this is where Saint Nicholas was the bishop of. So he's basically writing to to the great-grandparents of Santa Claus, okay? (laughs) And uh, he says, wherever the bishop shall appear, let the multitude of the people also be. So in other words, don't don't think bishop like today. Think bishop like the spokesman of God, the one who stands in the line of the apostles bringing the gospel message forward, wherever those predecessors of the apostles be, let the people gather. Why? Well, Because God's word's going to be there. Because where Jesus Christ is, there is the little C Catholic church. Wherever Jesus is, you have the church. Is Jesus in an Assembly of God church? Guess what? The church is there. It is Jesus in a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox church. And guess what? The church is there. And, and could Jesus even be in fellowship of faith? So. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Then the church is here. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, this is where it first began, but it really started to gain traction about a century later in relation to a movement called Novatianism. Okay, say Novatianism. Novosian. Novatius, if I can put it that way, was a Christian bishop. And they called themselves the Catharoi. Sounds like Catheter, right? Well, it sounds like that on purpose because it means the pure ones or the purified ones. And here's what they were all about. You've probably heard the stories of the early church where persecution was coming in. And just by being a Christian or just by being associated with a Christian, it could mean your life, your health, or your property. Well, what would happen to believers in, in, in various times in those days, is the authorities would come in. They'd say, give me your Bible, I'm going to burn it. And if you don't, I'm going to saw your wife in half right before your eyes. Renounce Christ, I'm going to string up your kids, and I'm going to dip them in tar and I'm going to light them on fire right before your eyes. Sometimes, though, it wasn't even that extreme. Sometimes it was simply this. People in the community figured out that I was a Christian and I'm losing business. I'm being ostracized. People won't associate with me. And the result back then was a lot like today. Some people were faithful even unto death, but some simply fell away. They said, give you my Bible or watch my wife be murdered? Here it is, buddy. Take it. They would do things, some of them like, renounce Christ, otherwise you're going to kill my kids? Fine, I don't believe in them. I don't, have believe in my heart. And there was this bishop named Navasius who said, those who have renounced Christ, if they are to repent later when the heat kind of simmers, don't let them back in. People like that are no longer part of the church. They can't be like us because the church must be pure. And what's fascinating is where the term Catholic really gained its steam was in contrast to the catharoi. So you hear the play catholic, catharoi, right? Go, no, wait. God's grace is unlimited. Even for people who do the worst of sins. God's grace is unlimited no matter what someone has done. God's grace is unlimited no matter what the mixed motive might have been. There is always room in the church, the Catholic church, little c, for sinners like these. And it was there before the modern day manifestation took root where the term really came to take its traction. It made its way even into the Apostles' Creed. Those of you coming out of liturgical backgrounds, you, you know this creed, right? But what a lot of people don't realize about things like the Apostles' Creed is that they're not only written as statements of what you believe, they're also written as statements of what you don't. So every line in the Apostles' Creed is actually specifically worded and chosen in such a way to say, I accept this, but I also reject this. Now, look at the last line of the Apostles' Creed. Say it with me. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Does your tradition say Catholic? If you're Protestant, I bet it doesn't. Protestants usually put in apostolic. I believe in the Holy Apostolic Church. I believe in the Holy Christian Church. They drop little C Catholic out. And, you know, let's, not, let's give them a break. It makes sense. Um, it, it's confusing to people if they don't know the context right. But the real original wording there is the Holy Catholic Church. And look what follows it the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Saying I belong to the Holy Catholic Church more, is more than saying we're all together. It's also a statement about result. That there is a community of saints that extends all space and time no matter what kind of sins you've done. We reject that novatious guy in his idea of the Catharite. There is a communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins that the Catholic Church revolves around. Are you with me? Which brings us back to the marathon. Now, one model or one way of really understanding the differences between all these various denominations is in terms of a marathon. So I want you to picture something. Every Catholic church, regardless of that's Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, non Evangelical, Anglican, Christian, Brethren, Amish, or anything in between, will agree with this metaphor that you can picture life somewhat like a marathon. Everyone is in the race. By virtue of being born, you find yourself at the starting line. Now, the finish of the race, 26.2 grueling miles later, is intimacy with God, eternal life, salvation, heaven and all that we as Christians are yearning and looking forward to based on God's hope. Are you with me? Except, here's the problem. Each of us, when we are born at that starting line, in one capacity or another, are disabled. Our legs just don't work. Which begs the question, how do you finish a race? if you can't even use your legs. Now, every Catholic church says this. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came, took on human flesh, lived like one of us, died for each of us, and rose again from the dead to somehow enable us to reach that finish line. Are you with me? The differences come in how they say Jesus actually goes about enabling you to do it. So they would say Christianity and the message of Jesus, well, it's a lot like this. Take a look. Christianity is that each and every one of us stand at the starting line, disabled. And no matter how many braces we try to put around our legs to get us from one point to the finish line, all of it in the end game, it, it is a futile affair and we're going to be run down by angry kids on bikes with rocks. But Christ comes and he does a miracle. He does a miracle that starts by his death and resurrection, and he continues that miracle to the individual by the power of his spirit that somehow enables us to finish that line. And the difference between various faith traditions comes in the answer of how Christ actually does it. Are you with me? So what I'd like to do is show you seven Catholic streams. Seven faith traditions that stand behind virtually every denominational and non-denominational Christian body today. And if you can understand the formal and material principle, but maybe more importantly, the, met- the marathon metaphor, you're going to have a grasp on what makes us similar, what makes us different, and why it's important. So let's start here. Roman Catholic. They obviously just kept the Catholic name. They're the oldest, they've got copyright. All right? (laughs) Now, Roman Catholics, contrary to what many Protestants will think, say that the Bible is the inspired word of God and the Bible is the source of authority for all Christian life, thinking, and practice. However, they'll also say that the Bible is only rightly interpreted when it is interpreted by the church as a whole. The church in their definition being the visible church of the Roman Catholic Church. So they bring a right interpretation to what the Bible is actually saying. Before you kick them in the teeth, Protestants, it's really not too bad. Have you ever been around some of these Protestants who come up with the most harebrained, whacked out interpretations of the Bible, and it's like, dude, you are so not grounded in the stream of Christian faith? So there's a wisdom there. But as Protestants, you can also see where there can be some issues that we have, but this is their formal principle. Now, their material principle is how to get righteous before God. They're obsessed with it. How do I stand before God as one who is declared not guilty? This is why in Roman Catholicism, God is so often pictured as a judge. And that type of relationship often interprets how those believers live. And this is how they say the marathon works. You are born at that starting line and you are disabled. You are unable and you need the grace of Jesus Christ. Yes, Roman Catholics believe in salvation by grace. You need the grace of Jesus Christ to enable you to hit the finish line. And here's how it works. They say that God comes to you at the finish line and somehow, a lot like Forrest Gump, he miraculously touches your legs so that you are now able to run to actually do the effort that you need to do to reach 26 miles later. This is why Protestants will often accuse Catholics of of a certain idea of, of salvation or righteousness by works. But it's a little bit distorted because they say you couldn't even do those works if it wasn't for the grace of Christ. We need the grace of Christ. But the grace of Christ enables us to do the works, to reach the finish line with his help. Are you with me? And the way that he goes about doing that is through something called the sacraments. In Catholic theology, there's seven of them. And those sacraments, if I can put it this way, are the energy drinks on the race. You ever try to run 26.2? You ever try to run a half mile? You wanna roll over and die, right? It depletes your calories, it dehydrates you. You need the Gatorade power ropes. You need that like gross power gel to keep going. You need these kinds of things, right? The sacraments are God's way of bringing grace or strength into you to finish the race. Now, in contrast to that, came a group back in 1517. We're doing a little bit of Greek here today. Try to figure it out. You see those like double letters next to each other with the dips? Those are gammas. Together, they make the sound like an angle. Give me an That's beautiful. All right. See if you can pronounce that. You. Right? Like euthanasia, euphoric, right? Euangelion. See it? You angelion. Uh, it's okay, just go with it. What's it sound like to you? You angelion. Some of you are saying evangelical. You means good. We still talk this way in the English language. Um, euthanasia. Thanatos means death. Good, death, euthanasia. That's where it gets its name. Angel. Angel. You hear it? What is an angel? It's a messenger. That's all the word means. Euangelion simply means good messenger, or maybe better put, the one behind it, good message. Or as you might have heard it, good news. When when the people who are called Lutheran today began, they never called themselves Lutheran. They never considered themselves followers of, of Martin Luther. They considered themselves followers of the one true God. And they were deemed with the term euangelion, which in English comes out as evangelical. In fact, if you were to go to Europe, they don't call them Luther at all. They just call them it's the Evangelicals over there. Which is interesting when you come on the States landscape, and there tends to be some other things. Now, the Lutherans said, you know, we understand what you're saying with the church tradition, but no, it's got to be the Bible alone. The Bible has to be the corrective. The formal principle of the evangelical movement of Lutheranism is, it is the Bible alone, let that rule the roost, even if it speaks against the church. And the material principle that Lutherans are obsessed with is this thing called justification by grace through faith. It was poised in contradiction, if you will, to Roman Catholic theology, going, no, 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 Christ doesn't just die for you to bust the braces off your leg, because even when Christ busts the braces off your leg, you still got to run 26.2 miles, and I don't know about you, I ain't ready for it, and if it's left to me to run the 26.2, I'm afraid that I'm not going to finish, and I'm going to lose something greater by far. So where Catholics would say Christ comes to you and he enables you to run the race, Lutherans will say Christ comes to you at that starting line and slings you on his back and carries you for those 26.2 miles, regardless or in spite of any effort that you give. Do you see the difference? No. Oh, there's that guy and he's really good, and there's that guy and he's really good, and you should know that one too, and how about that one and that one, all right? You get those seven streams of, baby, you got it. So some closing observations. Hey, I'll I'll take another 30, man. Cue the clock. Some closing observations. Let me just give you one more. Let me give you Calvin. Where's Calvin up there? I got time for him. Oh my gosh, I, to, I don't have time for this. Come on, Calvin, come, come here. All right, Calvin says this. Scripture in such a way that makes sense. All right? So, Calvin is all about logical connections. Lutheranism is big into paradox. Lutheranism can say things like this. God wishes all people to be saved, but you contribute nothing to your salvation. So if you're saved, it's because God chose you. But if you're not saved, it's because it's your own stick and fall.
1: Calvin goes, that doesn't make
0: sense. So Calvin came up with something called double predestination. And Calvin's material principle is all about the power and sovereignty of God. That what God decides determines everything. So God chooses you to win the race, you win. God chooses you to lose the race, you lose. It's almost like Jesus comes to all of us at the starting line, none of us who deserve to win. And just selects some and goes, you know what? You've won. I gave you one. I hate that clock guys I got 10 more minutes of material here today, but that's where we're at if you want to know more come talk to me alright guys I'd like you to rise we looked at a snippet of something called the Apostles Creed just a moment ago but you know what I'd like us to do is one body in Christ Regardless of our faith background and regardless of our faith tradition, is to proclaim that unity. Because you know why? It's good to be in a tribe. The distinctions between these seven streams are important. Paul will write guard your doctrine closely. Truth is important. Yet at the same time, it doesn't mean tribes you should be killing other tribes. Because the same Paul, who says, guard your doctrine closely, will say this. In Christ Jesus, you're all one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God who is over all and in all. For centuries, believers have been gathering to, to proclaim this unity of faith around these doctrinal beliefs that are rooted in the truth of Scripture as Catholics here today. I just invite you to profess that faith with me. Jump to the slide, please. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.